Dr. Meredith has been very consistently for some time talking about our need for increased faith, real faith. Uh, we have Council of Elders meetings, uh, you know, twice a year on the phone, then twice a year in person. And he'll want to wrap things up at the end of each meeting and talk about what's on his heart and what's on his mind. And I can always know at least one of those things is going to be how the church needs more faith. Can we grow in faith? We need an active, dynamic, living faith. And if God has moved Dr. Meredith to focus on that so consistently for so long, I would dare say it's because that's on God's mind as well. And so what do we do? There's really a lot of directions you could take an approach to try to grow in faith. Today is going to be one small aspect of focusing on what I think is really important, although at least in my life it's something I'm trying to focus on, which is becoming a person who can have more faith, uh, someone whose life is so ordered such that God is able to invest in it the kind of effort that is needed to increase in faith. And among those things, I think, in my opinion, is that we're looking for a faith that is mature. We're looking for a faith that is mature. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they were dealing with uh, prayers they had given as a family that weren't answered yes. They were answered no. And the result of that was difficult and it was a challenge. And they had children asking questions. Well, mommy and daddy, we asked God, why, why didn't this happen? Uh, why wasn't it the case? And so you examine your life and you try to understand. And it can be difficult for children, but there's a maturity of faith that we need. Even the apostle Paul, we're told in the Bible, went to God three times sometimes. Uh, in one particular case for a healing and then the answer came back, no, and here's why. And at least he had the comfort of knowing why. And it meant that there was a burden for him to bear, but it was a burden that was a part of a larger picture. Uh, our faith needs to be a mature faith because we know there's times coming that will require nothing less of us than a mature faith. And a mature faith is going to require a mature relationship with God. And with Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm, I know personally for me, I need to focus on that. I need to focus on growing in maturity in my relationship. You know, we have uh, marriages, many of us. We have some uh, newly married couples amongst us. We have some, you don't say oldly married couples. That doesn't exactly make sense. But anyway, some of them have been married for a lot longer. And we look at the newly married couples and think, oh, that is so cute. Boy, they have no idea what's coming, you know. They just, uh, you know, they just don't know, you know. Uh, but you know what? We don't. And yet we know enough to get started and then we mature and grow together. Uh, and that really should be our relationship with God as well, you know, that we mature and grow in that relationship together. And God does meet us where He needs to meet us. I always saw that example in the, the example of the Apostle Thomas. How God appeared, I mean, Jesus Christ appeared in a room with the Apostles. And they saw him there and the rest, and Thomas just wouldn't believe that. And so he appeared to Thomas very specifically, where Thomas had said, unless I put my finger in his hands and I put my hand in his side, it's going to have to take that for me not to know it's an imitation or a lookalike. And you know what? Jesus Christ met him where he needed to be met and said, put your hand in my side and put your fingers here. And Thomas did believe. He was true to his word and said, my Lord, my God, he understood but then Christ followed and said, you believe because you've seen. 
Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. And sometimes we're, you know, looking for things to happen that will somehow confirm our faith. Whereas God, I believe, is looking for a people that have a faith in which he can do things. And so Mr. Meredith keeps stressing to us because we need to grow in this particular way. And so what I want to focus on is a particular aspect of something that I I came across some time ago. And it comes back and haunts me from time to time. And so I want it to haunt some of you guys as well. I don't want to be haunted all by my all by myself. But I realize I want to be more devoted to God. You know, there are books that you'll see from a lot of uh, uh, various publishing firms called devotionals. You know, something where you can spend a day, day by day in terms of that. And uh, it's called devotional time where you focus on God a little bit. And uh, there's an old musical sometime long ago, I won't give the name of it, but which a particular actress uh, sang a song to her beau, hope, hopelessly, hopelessly devoted to you. Uh, and it's all so sweet. And so you're going, I know what that is. Well, don't say it out loud. There's a church and we're focused, uh, hopelessly devoted to you. And it was sweet and it was romantic. And oh, that's really nice. And I thought, well, I want to be devoted to God. Right. And so I studied the word and discovered something that unnerved me. But yet it did open my mind, at least, to what I think was a, a level of maturity in which I needed to grow at that time. Um, for example, you can turn to Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27. In Leviticus in chapter 27, we're not going to get into the the context because it's not really important for my point today. But he's giving them these meticulous rules concerning things that have been set aside for God, uh, things that are holy uh, to God uh, and what to do if, you know, you want to uh, redeem something like that. And and I won't get I won't get lost in the particulars because I do want to grab one item in in particular. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse uh, 28. He says here, nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the eternal of all that he has, both man and beast or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the eternal. So saying, if you devote this to me, then it's all mine. It's all mine. You know, you can't have it back. It's mine. It's been devoted to me. Uh, the, the word devoted and devote comes from a particular Hebrew root in these passages and multiple passages in the Bible uh, that either haram or harem uh, that's spelled. Uh, you, know, you can spell it various ways, but C-H-A-R-A-M is one way you could spell that. Then the harem, which is similar and also used for that uh, C-H-E-R-E-M is one way you could uh, you could spell that. But it's the word we see here, uh, devote, devoted, something devoted to me. He talks here about uh, of man or beast or field or possession. He's saying, you know, you can't, if you've devoted that to me, you can't then go take it and do something you want to do with it. You've, you've given that to me. That's mine. It's been devoted to me. And I think, well, that's, that's what I want. I want to be devoted to God. And so as I studied the word, uh, you read just a little bit longer. You see right in the very next verse, verse 29. It says, no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. 
And I think, ooh, yeah, well, that sounds that sounds rough. I hope I'm never, you know, doomed to destruction or put under the ban. Uh, and then you look at the Hebrew, and it's the same word. It's the same word being devoted. In fact, we see it in a variety of places. Uh, let's just look at Numbers chapter 21. We're just going to grab a sample. I would encourage you to do a word study yourself. It really is fascinating. Uh, but Numbers chapter 21, we'll see this same word that is translated devote or devoted. Numbers chapter 21. We're speaking here of some battles that were going on and Numbers chapter 21 as Israel is on its way to the promised land during its wandering and such. Numbers 21, we'll read in verse 2. So Israel made a vow to the eternal, Numbers 21 verse 2, and said to the eternal, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The word utterly destroy is haram. I will devote these cities. It continues, verse 3, And the Eternal listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And so the name of that place was called Hormah. They haramed the cities. They devoted them to God. And you think, well, maybe this is a bad translation because I don't want to be utterly destroyed. I just want to be devoted, right? I want God to, to, to look at me singing like that actress. So I'm hopelessly devoted. You know, oh, good. And we have a special relationship. And here, this word is being translated. The city is destroyed utterly. Uh, let's just look at one more example. But again, there's many. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 2. I don't want you to believe I'm just picking just a couple of examples. They're actually in a number of places. Deuteronomy chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 2. <coughs> and we have a similar kind of instance. Where a people have been utterly defeated. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 34. The recounting of the tale, Deuteronomy 2, verse 34, we took all his cities, speaking of the enemy king, at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. And utterly destroyed there is haram. We devoted all the men and the women and the children. And this was unnerving to me uh, to see this relationship. Uh, why such a relationship? Something being devoted to God in a way that doesn't have to imply that they're utterly destroyed and yet also connected in these ways. It's one of the challenges in translating uh, the books of the Bible because the, the original words are rich and sometimes it takes more than one word. And how do you really understand it? But when you look at how they're used, it often gains a depth. You often gain a depth of meaning. Uh, there's actually a particular commentary that I thought really summarized the connection very well. Why would the same word be used in that kind of way for devoted and then utterly destroyed in these senses? And they pointed out that the sense of the word, that something that is devoted, has been, quote, surrendered to God in an irrevocable and unredeemable manner. 
That is, when you burn that city to the ground, it will never be of use to anyone again but God. No one can come and use its pottery. Uh, no one can take its people as uh, servants or as uh, uh, you know, a part of your country to contribute to your workforce. That is only of use to God, whether as an example throughout history, it's only good for him. And there was that connection that when something is that city is burned and raised, it's never going to be used again. Those buildings are gone. Those people are gone. They're only of use to God for his purposes, irrevocably and unredeemably his. And so I had to come to recognize when I'm talking about that, I want to be hopelessly devoted to God, if you will. Then this is the connotation of such a word. Completely, irrevocably devoted means truly of just use to him. Everything I have completely and absolutely his. You know, I now I can't help myself if I see a scene of that young woman in that musical singing hopelessly devoted to you. I imagine everything on fire now and burning, you know, and everything, you know, charred remains. And I don't see it in the same way anymore uh, because of that. I bring this up because in this world, there is this sort of a pressure around us to paint a picture of God like what I call a Hallmark card God. You know, you get a Hallmark card for someone because you want them to feel better. You want them to feel good. You want them to feel nurtured and and loved. And don't get me wrong. I've talked about that. I believe in that. God does love us. He loves us in a way that is so deep and rich, we cannot scarcely comprehend it. And yet I have to make sure that it works with this too. That it works with this. If I'm going to see God in a fuller picture, God is much more than the Hallmark God that he's pictured uh, in chain letter emails are in fuzzy memes and pictures that sometimes we'll share on social media. It is true that God is love. It is true that he wants what's best for us. It's true that he wants us to enjoy our lives and the beauty around us. It's true that he wants to give to us, even in this life. It's true that he wants to take care of us. It's true that he wants to heal us. But it is also true that God has infinitely larger concerns for both our lives and the world that God isn't trying to give us the best 80 years on this planet we could ever have. He's trying to give us 80 million years beyond and then 80 million years beyond that and on and on into eternity. You know, sometimes I've used this analogy before, so I won't go back to it too much, but our very young children don't often understand that. We're trying to help them make decisions. They understand, look, I just want to do this. We're trying to, we're thinking not of them being 16. We're thinking of them being 46 Uh, and the kind of decisions they're making now that will impact their lives then. And sometimes it's hard for them to see. And sometimes it's hard for us to see God making similar decisions in our lives because we can't understand it. And part of a key to that, I think, at least in my life, is coming to understand what it truly means to be devoted to God and abandoning myself to what he thinks is important and what his plans are. And so that's the title of my sermon today. It's, Are You Devoted to God? It's a question, question mark at the end. Are you devoted to God? And I can't fathom that we'll each have the answer by the end of the sermon because it's a big question. 
And it's not my goal that whenever you leave, you'll think, well, I got it. You know, sure enough, this confirmed. It's not a Cosmo quiz. We're going to go through and you score 17 out of 20. Great. I'm devoted. I uh, don't got to worry about it anymore. Rather, I want to restore to the word devoted the kind of sense it deserves of uh, the fullness and gravity. And to hopefully by the end, you and I together coming to have a deeper understanding of what it truly means to be devoted. And then perhaps if there's time, even answering the question, if that's what it means, why would I bother? And to start off with, I'd like to take a look at some examples in the Bible. And I want to take a look and hopefully in each of these examples, maybe maybe just have us think about them a little more than sometimes we do. I know sometimes more than I have. Some of you might think, oh, I think of that example every time I read that. And it's like, well, good for you. But I don't. And so I want to take a look at some of these examples. Uh, let's look at an example in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And this is an occurrence during Jesus' ministry. John chapter 9. We have a man who was blind from birth, uh, who's healed. John chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1. We read, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. In other words, we have a human being who has never seen light, has never seen the face of his parents, uh, wouldn't have children generally in that society. Uh, We have to do remember this was back then. We have the Americans with Disabilities Act. As far as I know, King Herod did not have a Judeans with Disabilities Act. Uh, if you were not physically capable, you had a incredibly difficult life. You could not work like other people. There were not people saying, well, you know, we've, we've got to hire a certain number of people that can't do this or can't do that. Or, you know, we're going to go out of our way to find what you can do. We didn't have people generally like that. And so These people had a very difficult life. Their parents would have had a difficult life because your children are kind of part of what will help take care of you uh, when you get older. So we have someone that is never, never seen before in his life. Now, how old was he? Uh, It says here a man. The only clue we really have to, to, to narrow down his age to some degree at least is later in verse 21 when his parents are being grilled by by the authorities of the day. They don't really want to answer because if they do anything really that says, well, this Jesus healed him, this man, well, Jesus was not a popular guy with the authorities, you know, and so things would have come upon them. And so they essentially say, look, ask him, Uh, you know, go talk to him. You know, he's the guy. Now, he said who it was. And so we see in verse, uh, for instance, 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know or who opened his eyes. We do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. In other words, look, he's old enough. Now, back then, as at least some commentaries have pointed out, that meant at least 13, that generally you had to be considered man enough for your testimony to mean something in court. And they wouldn't bring in a four-year-old and say, what did you see happen? Well, I saw flying monkeys, you know, and all the rest. Well, put that in the ledger. Uh, you had to eventually reach this age where you recognize as a man of enough capacity and, frankly, liability and responsibility and accountability to report on what you've seen. And at least in my research, that means at least 13. So you're talking best case scenario. This is someone who's been blind 
for 13 years, never seeing the light of day. Now, the context suggests he was more than that, that he was an adult. Uh, but at least we know at least that, that he would have been at least 13. So we continue in verse two. This prompts the disciples to question. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because they had no doubt in their mind, and this was a reasonable kind of thought within a certain worldview, that was a curse. That was a curse. It was hard on him. It was hard on his family. To say that blindness is not a difficulty is not somehow... We have a society that doesn't recognize things anymore like it used to. We can talk about how, you know, but but I appreciate sounds so much better and the rest. And that is wonderful. And we can learn from that. But to somehow say that it's not a burden to be blind, that it's not a difficulty, is hogwash. Uh, it's just part of our society that somehow just wants to make everything just as acceptable instead of looking forward to a day when everyone will see and everyone will walk and no one will have these kinds of burdens as their bodies function the way God intended them to be, not in a world corrupted by sin and degradation. So they recognize here's a guy that has probably had to beg, is scraping by, pass by most of humanity, not even considering him worthy to be a part of that society, just more a burden than anything, clearly a curse. And they wanted to know of their teacher so clearly this must be because of some sin. But at the same time, he was born this way. He was born this way. So could it be his sin? Because that didn't seem possible. Or was it his parents? Unless it was kind of God knew he would sin eventually and therefore he made him more blind. Or was it his parents who sinned? And so it's a burden on them as well. And he's having to bear the burden of their sin. And they really wanted an answer. And sometimes we can think, well, that's so silly of them. You know, don't they realize God told Moses, I make the deaf, I make the mute. Uh, don't they have a bigger perspective and realize there's bigger things at play? And yet we can fall into the same category sometimes. Don't get me wrong. If, if there's a burden in our life, if it feels like we're under the curse, so to speak, it is never a bad time to examine yourself. Ever. Never does something come in our lives. We can say, oh, good, I can take a break from examining my life. I'm so tired of doing that because all I see is sunshine and lollipops. There's nothing for me to work on. I, I always encourage us to examine our lives. But the idea that somehow every burden in our life and everything that seems like a difficulty is due to a sin, we just have to be careful about that. It's often not that I see people direct that at themselves, though some people do. Sometimes we direct that at others. Well, if they're going through that, they must be sinning somehow. But then it shows up in our lives, and we kind of question that assumption a little bit. And Jesus Christ answers them very forthrightly. But it's his answer, which I really want to wrestle with today. Let's go back to their question, verse 2. It says, his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then we go through the story how he spits on the ground and mixes it, his saliva with the, with the clay and puts that on the man's eyes and the man can see. People have asked before, why, why did Jesus do something like that? Well, I don't know. If, there's a lot of reasons we could just speculate. Uh, but if you think about it, we use olive oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit and there's anointing and washing with clean water. 
But for something to be used not like olive oil or something considered pure, but actually coming from the man Jesus Christ, something that would often be considered an insult to be spat upon, has brought healing and sight to this man. There was no way you couldn't connect the two. And so that's something, uh, it's an assignment to talk about later. You know, why, why did Jesus Christ do that? But the point I want to focus on is what he says in verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This man, let's just say he's 20. He's at least 13. Doesn't mean he's an older man. Let's just say he's 20. If he's endured two full decades of this difficult life, of not truly being able to earn, of not seeing a wife and a family ever in his future, of being knowing that he's a burden on his parents, able to do nothing, not even able to read the words of God uh, in the synagogue or in the meeting place, never seeing his own parents' faces, never seeing the sun for 20 years. And we're here informed by Jesus Christ, the reason for all of this was for this very moment. This very moment that the works of God should be revealed in him. If we're devoted to God, he has that right and authority to use our life as he sees fit. You might think, well, that's a little harsh. Maybe he just could have been blind before. Like maybe he could see for most of his life and maybe just the last week there's some terrible accident or something and then he goes blind and and Christ heals him. And yet for God's purposes, he thought this was the way to do this. This is what was more important. And do we question him or do we trust his judgment in that? Because being devoted means you are completely at God's discretion. There is no facet of our lives that we can say, please allow me to keep this. I don't want you to have this or use for your purposes. And so I think about that example a lot. Now, he was joyful. You know, sometimes we want to be that kind of example and we like to tailor how God uses it. Uh, you know, in our case, we've, we've been looking forward to having a house uh, that we actually own here. And it looks like it's finally maybe getting finished and we may be able to take possession in October, or November. But we were supposed to have it last December. You know, it's been a while and I've crammed my children into this little rental home. And it's rough when your kids are 17 feet tall, uh, you know, and their legs go down the stairs. And uh, anyway, but, you know, it's been fine. Well, maybe it's because God just wants to work this amazing miracle And the works of God will be shown to all of these people that, wow, look how he worked that out. I've seen it happen in other people's lives. I've seen it in some of your lives where the distress was just so some amazing miracle could take place. It's like, wow, I want that kind of faith. But what if the works of God that he wants to show everyone is something he's doing in you? The patience with which you endure The smile you're able to keep on your face because you see a larger picture when the rest of the world says you should be crying. Isn't that a work of God as well? And being devoted means letting him make the call, which that's going to be. Now, think of the example of Abraham. God needed to know that Abraham was devoted, that there was nothing, absolutely nothing that he would hold back. 
When that city was devoted to God, when it was burned, it was everything. It was the granaries. It was the homes. It was the administration buildings. It was the palaces. It was the huts. It was the dog houses. Every aspect of it was devoted to God. And if Abraham was going to be the father of the faithful and God was going to work his wonders in that man, in his lineage, he needed to know, are you devoted? Are you truly devoted? And he had some tests, right? You know, he goes through dangerous areas. And it's like, oh boy, my wife's, you know, she's, she's kind of pretty. Yeah, they're probably going to want to marry her and they're just going to kill me. Hey, sweetie, just say you're my sister. Just say you're my sister. Don't say you're my wife because, man, they're going to kill me if they think I'm married to you because they're going to want you for themselves. I can just imagine Sarah saying, are you, yes, sir, whatever you say, but are you listening to yourself? This doesn't, this doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, if they, if they don't know I'm your wife, they're just going to think I'm available and they're going to go ahead and whisper me. Yeah, yeah, honey, we'll, just do it for me, okay? Just do it at all. You know, I'm the husband. You know, I don't want to explain. You know, I just want you to just want you to do it. Well, God does work it out all those times, right? God does work it out. But God needed to know that this man Abraham was going to be what he needed him to be, that he would be a devoted vessel that he could use for all of his purposes. And I think of his sacrifice or near sacrifice of Isaac as an example of that. Because I have heard more than one person say, and I have said myself, God, bring whatever you want to bring on me, but please spare my children. Please spare my son. I haven't had the chance to say it, but please spare my daughter. Uh, you know, I, I, that's, that's not something, anything special about me. It wouldn't have been special about Abraham. God designed us that way. God designed us that way. And we want to be, we, maybe we're at a point we can trust God with our lives that it's all completely His for His purposes. But when it comes to my children, I just want them healthy and safe. And here's Abraham asked to sacrifice Isaac, not just to see him potentially die, but then potentially to die by his own hand. It's easy to look at Paul's uh, description and what the Bible says and recognize, well, Abraham was such a man of faith. He knew the promise was coming through Isaac and therefore, you know, maybe God would resurrect him, whatever. He knew that God would work it out. And we can write that off as, yeah, you know, Abraham, he had faith. He totally understood. But then we just don't really think about it. I don't know how much faith I'd have to have to just make sacrificing my own son be nothing but a thing. It's like, yeah, sure, God, whatever. I can go do that. I imagine it's one of the most difficult things, literally the most difficult trial he ever had in his life. And when God spoke uh, through that message, said, you know, Abraham, Abraham. And when he turned around and said, here I am, I should imagine the relief he must have felt. Because I imagine it was right there at the very last moment when the only thing left to do was to do it. And God pulled him back and saw in Abraham someone devoted Someone to whom everything he had was God's to use for his purposes and to achieve something larger and wonderful that, frankly, all of us continue to benefit from here today and all around the world in God's church. And look at Jesus Christ. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. We could spend the entire sermon just talking about the devotion of Jesus Christ. Well, I just want to hit a thing or so. In Luke chapter 9. You know, sometimes, and I don't know that I've heard these words, 
but I can identify with the mindset. We understand that Jesus Christ died for us so we don't have to. We understand that in his body, he took stripes on himself and allowed his body to be ravaged, just like sin ravages our bodies, so that he could pay the full price. We'd have access to healing, physical healing, but then, of course, more importantly, spiritual healing and be able to be saved from death. We get that. And sometimes we can extend that too far and think that Jesus Christ suffered what he suffered so we wouldn't have to suffer. And that's just not the biblical message. It says, rather, he set an example for us so that when we do go through suffering, we follow his examples. Like a little brother striving while walking behind a big brother to place their feet in the very same footsteps. He suffered what he did as well to show us how to do it and how to do it right. And how a devoted follower of God does it. And we're told specifically in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23... It says, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, what does that mean? I don't know if I've mentioned here before, uh, but I, I did see a guy who interprets that literally once. I might have mentioned it before I was in college. This guy went from college to college with a big, giant cross. Had like a wheel at the end of it so he could drag it on the ground and not tear it up. But he would go to the colleges and then tell all the college students how they're all going to hell. Uh, and then all the college students would make fun of him. I'm not going to hell. You're going to hell. Whatever. They just go back and forth and back and forth. Meanwhile, his wife and children were passing out literature saying, no, yes, really, you're all going to hell. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was a fun time. I took some pictures. Because uh, I knew he was wrong, but he took that very literally. You know, he actually literally drug a cross around. This isn't what Jesus is saying to do. Really, what was his cross? It was that which was used to destroy his life. It was that which was used to torture him to death. And Jesus Christ is saying, unless you're willing to pick up whatever it is, your burden is daily. You actually can't be my disciple. Because the path my disciples have to walk includes such things. He goes on to say in the next verse, verse 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And again, I used to read that verse and just think about the willingness to die. And I look at the apostles that have gone before us. And I look at even those that come after. You read our booklet. If you haven't in a long time, please do. God's church through the ages. And look at what those who have gone before us have done. Uh, another thing Mr. Meredith has stressed was this heritage that we have inherited. This history that goes back. Dr. Winnale has done the same thing. These people that have gone before us. It's worth taking a look. At what they did. At what they went through. And I used to think of it that way. Well, am I willing to die? Am I willing to lose my life? Because if so, I need to be able to be willing to lose it. Because that's the only way I'm going to have eternal life. And yet, being willing to lose your life in terms of what he says. In terms of, uh, sorry, saving your life. Sometimes, well sure, I'd be willing to lose my entire life. But sometimes we'd rather do that than lose it in pieces. Sometimes we'd rather lose our whole life than give up our particular addiction or attitude or our, our belief baby, uh, our grudge against someone else in a congregation. We'd actually rather die and preserve that one thing 
It doesn't have to be. I was listing evil things. It doesn't have to be evil things. Maybe we have a job where we serve and help people and do a lot of good. Well, we'd almost rather die than lose that. That becomes the temptation to change or to compromise or do something else. Jesus Christ said, no, you've got to be willing to lose it all. Everything that you hold precious in your life, including, and actually let's go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 14. He makes it plain what kind of things are included. In Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And we think, well, okay, you know, we we explained this properly, that he doesn't truly mean hate. How can you honor your father and mother and truly hate them and want to do them harm? And we explain it means love less by comparison. Love less by comparison. And that's true. That is not false. We do still need to understand what he is saying. Because loving them less than we love God means always making sure God is chosen first. And that does lead to very painful things. We tend to think of things like having a spouse who disagrees with us about our faith and wants to leave. And I have known members whose spouses have left them because of their beliefs. It happened in the first century. It certainly still happens every once in a while today as well. Uh, children who, in a sense, reverse disown their parents. I've seen that. It happens. Parents who disown their children. But is there anything we would withhold from God? Like in some ways, it might be easier to disown a child than to simply think of them as unhealthy. It might be easier to have a spouse just leave us than sometimes be willing to stay, but always have this difficulty there. Jesus Christ says, it all has to be mine. It sounds greedy, right? It's all got to be mine. It sounds greedy, but the number of thoughts that go through my mind is who in whose hands can I trust them better to do the right thing and to make the calls that I wouldn't make. It's not a matter of making the calls that I would make, but who can I trust to make the calls I wouldn't? If you would turn to Hebrews 11, uh, look at some other examples, Hebrews chapter 11, and we Frequently called that. We have nicknames for certain chapters, right? Some of you might know those nicknames. Uh, if you've never heard them before, we often call Hebrews chapter 11 the Heroes of Faith chapter. I've called it the Hall of Fame chapter. I've heard it called that. But Heroes of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And these were people devoted to God. These are people devoted to God, given to us as examples. Look at these people. Look at their lives. And seek to emulate them. You know, if we had a hall of heroes with statues of various ones, it wouldn't be the presidents. uh, It wouldn't be comic book heroes. It'd be these people. It'd be these people. And I certainly won't read them all. It could be tempting to do so. We're not going to. Let's just jump down uh, quite a ways to verse 32. Hebrews 11 and verse 32. And we read... 
him say here, and of what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, we want faith, right? We want to be devoted like them so God can work the works of God in us. Well, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Who wouldn't want out of weakness to be made strong? Became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. I read these things, and especially the man in me really gets kind of fired up. When I read, you know, turning to flight the armies of the aliens, I think, yeah, I want to do that. You know, I just, you know, you fantasize. You know, someone's going to be criticizing the church of God, and you're going to stand up and say, get your Bible, buddy, you know, and you're going to go to town, and they're going to shame and cower, and like, oh, you know your Bible so much better. You know, that's right. You know, we want to be that kind of hero, right? We want God working in us. Answering the questions of magistrates, putting down the insults of the non-believers and shaming them for what they stand for, which is all the things that God doesn't. We want to be these people in Hebrews 11. And the key to being these people is being devoted absolutely in a hundred percent. And yet when we say we want to be these people, Hebrews 11 doesn't stop there. Back to verse 35, where it says women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. The world wasn't worthy of them. When we say we want to be among the devoted, we don't get to pick which side of Hebrews 11.35 God may need us to stand. We don't get to pick the verse that he will place our name in. It might be the one turning back the armies of the aliens and glorifying God in front of all the people uh, because of the knowledge that he's given us and all the rest. Or it might be the person who dies shamed and ridiculed. We don't get to pick. Being devoted means trusting God with that choice. You know, I think of the uh, apostles. You know, the apostles, the early disciples, this include Barnabas, you know, in that, and certainly Paul. What amazing models of people who were devoted. They recognized, they had in their hands the greatest single endeavor in human history. It's easy sometimes to get jaded about that because we talk about it a lot. There's a reason we talk about it a lot. It's easy to think, oh, you know, here's another magazine. Oh, the, you know, the telecast is on this week. And oh, good, there's a Tomorrow's World presentation. It's easy to think that and just think, well, you know, it's another speech. It's another article. 
We don't know that when they've heard Peter give his 117th sermon or message to a crowd, there once some saying, oh, well, you know, there it is again. He always likes that example. Not recognizing it was God himself using these men to do that. And they recognized that. And they bore the burden of that, recognizing there's not a single thing going on in the world. There's not a ruler making a decree for his people. There's nothing going on in the world that is more important than what God Almighty is doing in the world right here. And I can't imagine it felt like a glory to them. I imagine it felt like a burden. A burden. An amazing burden to have. But a burden. I remember when I was first added to any kind of speaking schedule at all, and I imagine some of our sermonette guys can speak to this as well, that it's one thing to kind of pontificate to your friends. It's like, well, you know, I think maybe this or this, you know, about the Bible, this or that. Next thing you know, you're talking in front of God's people, and you feel the burden. And I know I'm looking at some sermonette guys' faces. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all of a sudden, there's a lot more pressure to get it right. Because God expects it of you. Because he knows lives are impacted by that. They understood that. And they gave the full measure of their devotion. There was nothing these men in the end held back. You know, we can't trust uh, history all the time. There is no perfect book but this one. And even the translators try hard to mess it up. Uh, there's no perfect book in the world that accurately records everything. And so we can't always trust legend and the rest because it might be wrong. It's often, when my wife and I are talking about this just today, that these accounts are often colored by the points of view of the people who are writing them who want to say a certain thing. <clears throat> but that said, if there's any truth at all to some of the tales of how the apostles and the early disciples were martyred. It is quite a tale of devotion. Uh, Fox's book of martyrs isn't always trustworthy, certainly in everything it says. But it does contain some tales. If there's anything true in it, then among these things are things that are possible. Um, concerning Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, Simeon, Simeon, Andrew, the two Jameses, Stephen, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Jude, Matthias, Paul, Barnabas. Fox's Book of Martyrs tries to, to pull together what is at least, if not known, talked about uh, how some of them may have met their end. And if any of the tales have some truth to them, then we know that some were hanged and some were stoned, some were beheaded, some were crucified. One may have been dragged through the streets to his death tied to horses. One may have been shot with arrows, one flayed alive, and one thrown from the top of the temple and beaten to death where he landed. They were devoted. You know, after the first five or six guys goes out like that, you start to recognize how you might go out too. And they didn't hold back. They didn't reserve a part for them. It is, and I don't say this in a way that tries to make it negative. Um, let, me, let me say, for instance, it should be a terrifying thing to say to a woman, I do. I'm not saying because it's bad. Uh, it's good. Marriage is wonderful, you know. But it should be somewhat terrifying. Because it is a terrifying and awesome thing to commit to the rest of your life to caring for another human being who isn't you. It should be appropriately terrifying. 
because it simply shows an understanding of the gravity. There's a joy. It's a, it's this odd, wonderful mix. There's a joy as well, right? It's something wonderful. It's something wonderful. But it is something serious. That's why Mr. Wesson uh, stressed way back when, I remember, we all watched a, a video. I think they even had it at the feast about how he, he we didn't want to put up with these kind of jokey weddings, Weddings that are all just kind of, you know, balloons and unicorns and, you know, whatever. Don't get me wrong. We have a celebration when it comes to the service itself. We want to treat that as something sacred. Because God is present. And there is something terrible in the King James version of the sense terrible where God is called a terrible God. There is something wonderfully terrible going on there. The uniting of man and woman. And I say that to try to set this up, that it is truly a terrifying and awesome act to call Jesus Christ Lord and mean it. And mean it. You know, as I was pastoring in Missouri, it was so frustrating because there were all these signs. I don't know who had the money to put up all these signs. They were just big green billboards with big white letters that just said Jesus on it. And it's just you're driving around town and you're seeing Jesus here and Jesus there and Jesus there. And and we believe in Jesus Christ and preaching his whole name. But it was just like it was just some sort of five magical letters somehow. And I thought these people have no idea what they're doing. They really don't know what it means for that name to mean something to you. Oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then go back around the back of the church and smoke and drink and do whatever you want. He's not your Lord then. He's not your Lord then. The Lord, your Lord, my Lord, is the one to whom I owe everything. Who says, go and do this, and I don't have the ability to say no. I don't have the right to say no. I try to make the point sometimes in uh, uh, counseling for baptism. Because I've actually had people ask me, especially people new, why do you counsel for baptism? And they look at the example of the eunuch. Uh, that Philip was taken to. And, you know, he just met the eunuch. He showed him some scriptures, helped him to see who Jesus Christ was and the rest. He's like, well, hey, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Well, sure, they got down and dunked the eunuch, and that was it. And it was done. And they said, well, I understand. Why do we counsel then? And there's a lot of good reasons why that is. If you haven't been baptized yet, ask your minister when you counsel. But among them is this. I'll just use, I brought the eunuch up for this example. Back then, when someone was your Lord, you knew what that meant. Nowadays, we have two people running for uh, uh, political office, the presidency of the United States. And I just imagine our talk show hosts in the world are licking their lips. Because no matter who gets this presidency, they have got jokes for the rest of the next four to eight years. Uh, If anything, it's an American sport to mock your leaders. And to make fun of politicians. Not back in the day when that person was called Lord. I use just as an example, please don't make me elaborate, the fact that this man was a eunuch means he knew what it meant to have someone who had total and utter authority in his life. Why did they make men eunuchs? Well, one of the reasons was so they could never have children. And they would never have a lineage. They would try to overthrow a king for their sons and grandchildren. That was just one of the reasons. If this man was a eunuch, he knew there was someone in his life that had the authority to say, take this man and surgically change him so he never has children in his life. 
He understood what it meant to have a Lord. And when he was committing to Jesus Christ as Lord, there wasn't a question. I will commit myself to someone who owns everything I have. And I can tell him what I want him to do with those things. But it's his call. I will have to be devoted. To devote ourselves in such a way, we have to learn to trust. And that's part of where it's difficult because we talk about trusting God to heal us. And that's a good thing. I'm not trying to knock that. If you don't trust God, how can he heal you? Part of the point of healing is to work something in you. More than just the physical, something spiritual. We know that Jesus Christ himself wasn't able to heal in some cities because they didn't trust, they didn't believe, they didn't have faith. Trust is vital. And if we're going to be able to devote ourselves to him where we let him make the calls, that is a trust. But too often we turn that to be, I trust God to accomplish what I want. I know my family needs a car or a house. I just trust God to provide what I want. Instead of I trust God to take care of my needs. I trust God to make the choice that he knows is right. Even when we say I trust God to take care of my needs. Those who went before us who were stoned to death or crushed with rocks. How was that their need? I think they needed fewer rocks on them. I think they needed fewer rocks taking their life blow by blow. And yet they still trusted. They had even more than Job, the fullness of the statement he makes, where he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. (coughs) Trusting God means more than trusting him to take care of us. Though it does mean trusting him to take care of us. It also means trusting him if our calamity serves his purpose better. Whether it's for us or others or perhaps people we will never meet in our lives, in this life. Do we even know that sometimes what God might be working in us? I mean, think of how many people have suffered in scripture for us. How many of our stories of difficulty and patience in suffering isn't even meant to be something in this life, but meant to be an example he can use in the millennium for someone else? Do we trust God to make that call? Because sometimes he does need to make that call in a way that we wouldn't like. And we have to have a trust that survives that. Trusting God means more than trusting him to preserve our health and remove or protect us from pain. Though trusting him does involve going to him for that and truly believing that he can, that he can heal. But also means trusting him with our pain or illness to use as he sees fit, even if it's a larger purpose than we would wish for. Trusting him means more than trusting him to save our lives when we're in danger. It means trusting him with our life and with our death. For him to serve others with, serve his purpose with. And it means more than trusting him to fulfill our desires and make our dreams come true in this life. There's something about this prosperity gospel out there that certain preachers like Joel Austin and others will teach 
that God just wants to give you the good life. He can't wait to give you the first uh, the uh, first class seat on the airplane that you never paid for. And don't get me wrong, those things do happen from time to time. I wish they happened more to me. But they do happen, right? And we praise God and thank Him for that. Like, wow, how did He know? You know, I really wanted a chicken sandwich right at this time and someone gives me a free chicken sandwich. If you haven't talked to Mr. Fritz and heard his bubblegum story, uh, you know, that he tells at camp, you need to talk to him about the bubblegum story. It's very good. Uh, God knows and God does provide these amazing things. And yet at the same time, trusting God means trusting him for more than simply being our genie to fulfill our wishes and our desires. It means trusting him to use us to fulfill his desires and his wishes and then trusting that his desires and wishes will always be better than ours and those to which we should be willing to commit ourselves. You know, I imagine when Jesus Christ talked about if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, if you're not willing to be persecuted for my sake, I imagine having a list in my life of the things that I care most about. And some of them are probably ridiculous that I wouldn't want you to be exposed to because I know you would judge me probably accurately. So let me do the highfalutin things, the things that are more impressive. My children, right? My children would be on the list. Uh, certainly my ability to do the work, uh, to being healthy enough to be able to, to contribute to the effort here would be high on the list. My health. I, I want God to preserve my health and to keep me in a place where I can serve my family, my wife. I say my most cherished possession, but I don't know if that sounds demeaning or not. But still, anyway, uh, you know, my wife, the one person in the world that has put up with me for almost 25 years. I don't want anything to happen to her. I want God to keep her in my life. Once I'm gone, whatever, right? But still, I want her every day I'm here. I want her there. And I have this list of these things that I want to keep. That when the city is being burned down and there is haram occurring, there's those things that I want to hope fit within the scope of his plans and purposes that they may remain. When Jesus Christ says, if you're not willing to give it up in my name for me, I have to recognize that every one of those things, I have to be able to cross those out and replace them with Jesus Christ. And to know that in the end, when all things have come to fruition, that they would have wanted that as well. You know, something I learned from Mr. John Aguin's death, if you turn to Psalm 116, Psalm 116. And it's a statement that I began to think of differently. I think I had the sermonette right after that in Dallas. I can't recall. I think I did. And that was a, that was a rough one. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. Actually, it was not then. It was, uh, it was something else the first time this verse came to me. I know it came to me actually then as well, but I'd already, I'd already been meditating on it. Uh, Psalm 116 and verse 15. We are promised by God, precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. 
precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. Now, there's a lot of ways you can read that passage and think about that. And I, there was a time, and I'm not saying this is terrible, but there was a time when I just thought of that as almost like a something precious, like a precious moments kind of thing. You know, those little statues with kids with the teardrop eyes and always oh, he was precious, uh, meaning that it, it means a lot to him. That, that he attends to it. That when one of his saints dies, God is not off someplace in the cosmos not paying attention. And not attentive to that. As we saw with Stephen, Jesus Christ standing at the death of Stephen. That that death was precious to him. But on meditating on it, I thought of it further. And it's helped. It's, it helped when Mr. Aguin died. And I, among many here, I know, were wondering why. Why did that happen? Uh, and it was this. Because it didn't give me the answer to the why. Sometimes we don't get that answer until later. But it did help when I read precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. And I thought, you know, what if my family were in dire financial distress? I've tried to warn my congregations that this is a church that believes in the work. Uh, just like Paul, for the sake of the work, sometimes had to had to build tents. You know, it had to do something. If if the work starts dwindling money wise, I've kind of warned my family, you know, it's we've got priorities. We're not one of those that's just simply trying to make sure the retirement plan is good and all the rest. We believe in a work. So. Boys, you better get some useful skills because I have none. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I preach and I do math and that's really it. And people don't always want to pray for math and, I mean, uh, pay for math in hard times. But anyway, I think about that. What if hard times come and you're looking and all you have left, you don't have a job, all you have are your belongings. And so it, it becomes pawn shop time or hawking things. You do a, a garage sale for all the things you think might have some value to somebody uh, to keep paying the bills and keep feeding your children. And then it just becomes everything else. And you're just taking what you can. Uh, you take the kids' video game system. And, of course, there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And uh, you take the television. Uh, you start to sell your best clothes. But imagine amongst those things there was something that you cherished. Something that was precious to you. Maybe, and I just, you know, try to imagine what. Maybe it's a, a classic work uh, that maybe your grandfather passed on to you. Maybe it was an original copy of, of something and he had signed it. And you knew it would be worth a lot. You don't even like the book. You get a lot of money for it. But your grandfather gave you that. And it's precious to you. And you would sell all your clothes but what you need to stay modest before you sold that. You would sell all your tableware but one set that you just have to wash every meal before you sold that. You would sell your curtains. You would sell your carpet. You would sell your furniture before you sold that. It doesn't mean you wouldn't sell it. But because it's precious to you, you would never sell it lightly. You would sell it when you knew it was the time. And when selling it was the needful and necessary thing to do. And even though I didn't have an answer to why uh, Mr. Aguin died, that verse got me through that. Recognizing that precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. I may not know why, but I know that God doesn't take such things lightly. And he doesn't do them willy-nilly. And that that death, just like any of ours would be, is something precious to him.
And we have to have these things in mind if we're going to be devoted like he's asking us to be devoted. Uh, consider the prayer in Acts chapter 4. I'll have to skip it for the sake of time, but I do hope you'll read it uh, sometime. When I read the first century church praying for gifts, Mr. Meredith keeps telling us, pray for gifts, pray for gifts. Oh, fine, let's turn there. Acts chapter 4. How can I do it? And not How can I skip it? It's way too impactful on what I'm trying to say. Acts chapter 4. What I see in the first century church is a church devoted. And what I see in this prayer to a great extent is a church that we hope to reflect. That long to be filled with faith and long to have God work in them and work with healings and work with power and work with miracles. And so in Acts chapter 4, when I see that prayer, it was right after a time of persecution. The apostles had been in trouble. They had been threatened with beatings and potentially death by people with the authority to make those things so. It's one thing for your neighbor to say, you know what, you better watch it. I got an eye on you. It's another thing for the government and the people with guns and power to say, you better watch it. We have our eye on you. And so they did, but they were released at this particular time and they went back to the rest of the, uh, uh, the church and, and it told the church, here's what they said. They said, you say this stuff, we're coming after you. You preach these things, we're beating you. You preach these things, we're dragging you into jail. Do not preach in the name of this man. And then we have the church's prayer. Uh, the first part of it's fascinating to me, actually, in verse 24. It says they heard these things, and it says they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things and the kings of the earth took their stand? The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They begin praising God, as the maker of all things, understanding this is the one to whom they are praying. How do we start with the Lord's Prayer? You know, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's that grounding. They practice that there. And they go into a bit of history. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel will gather together to do whatever your hand and purpose had determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and protect us from them. Keep us safe from harm. And keep us healthy and happy. It's not what they prayed. What was their mind on? They recognized they were a devoted people. And they said, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They prayed for the work. They prayed for the work. We live in a day and age where there are people that dare call themselves a part of the church of God who mock the idea of trying to reach the world with a work. They didn't think, wow, how are we going to get a website up? This is the first century. What are we going to do? Oh, what are we going to do? You know, we've got to wait until televisions are invented before we reach the world. They didn't say that. They knew they were a ragtag group of people. God was behind them. They weren't worried about limitations or funds. They knew they could do anything God asked them to do. And so they asked, in the face of these threats, God, help us do the work. Verse 30, how? By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, I've heard online uh, and just by 
word of mouth here and there. You're in the field and you hear things of people mocking uh, the kind of things we do and what Mr. Meredith is asking for, saying, pray for signs and wonders that God may power the work and the people will hear it and believe it. And I look in the first century and see them praying the same thing. If I'm going to get made fun of for giving the same kinds of prayers and having the same hopes and desires that the first century church did, you know what? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. We're in good company then. They finished the prayer there. God honored it. It said he shook the place where they were and they were filled with power and boldness. And I don't see anywhere in that an orientation towards the self. Did they want power? Did they want healings? Yes, they did. Why? So that the work could be empowered. When you are fully devoted, it frees up a certain kind of focus and orients it towards God's. When there's that trust that if that's what he chooses, that we go to jail, that we do these things, that we're beaten and persecuted, we'll let him make that call. I, don't get me wrong. I'm sure they also were praying. By the way, I sure don't want to get beaten today. Don't, it's not wrong to pray for that. It's not wrong to say, hey, it'd be great if we weren't arrested today while we were in the temple. At the same time, God, that's your call. Just give us boldness regardless. Trusting God means wholeheartedly believing in these things. That our life is completely his. That yes, we pray that he will heal us and keep us healthy. And yet at the same time, we recognize that that's his call. And so we might ask, well, then why do it? I mean, really, if, if being devoted to God isn't going to mean that I live a good, healthy life to the day that I die, uh, taken care of, not worried about things. If it means I got to worry about my mortgage, like the people who aren't trying to do the work, if I got to worry, you know, about my health and getting older and all the rest, like the people that aren't doing these things, well, then why do it? Then why do it? It reminds me of what Paul came to learn. It's the last example I want to look at and we'll wrap up. When Paul is on trial for his life in the book of Acts, uh, you can turn there in Acts chapter 26. Paul had a rough life, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead over and over and over. Wasn't married, sometimes by himself, suffering, bleeding. If anyone knew what it meant to be devoted, to be wholly given over into the hands of God, it was Paul. It's funny whenever you see Paul talking to Ananias about Paul and he essentially says, you know, I, I, Paul is going to do amazing wonders for me and he's going to see how much he has to suffer for me. We always want to be the first part of that. We don't want to be the second. And Paul lived them both. In Acts chapter 26, he's on trial and when he should be defending himself, even the people there say, there's not really a case against this guy. He could go free. If he would just take the time to explain that he's innocent of these charges, we'd let him go. But Paul was always about the kingdom of God. Even when he's in shackles and tatters, it's still about preaching the kingdom of God. And so here he is, and he's before King Agrippa. And we see in Acts chapter 26, and we'll start in verse 24. Festus is just crazy. Festus can't believe this. He'd come to like Paul to a certain extent and think, oh, man, you know, this guy, Paul, he's kind of a nut for his religion. But, you know, regardless, he ought to get off free because he's a good guy. 
And he doesn't see Paul making a defense. He doesn't see him doing anything that any rational person would do. He sees him trying to convert the king. He sees him trying to preach the gospel to everyone there in that room. People that are more powerful than him. People with money. People with wealth and luxury. Thinking that somehow a guy in chains is going to make a case to make them think, yeah, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so he says there in verse 24, it says, Now as Paul, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He said, you are going insane, Paul. In verse 25, it says about Paul, it says, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing, speaking of everything that happened in Jerusalem, this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Here he is in chains. Not even knowing if he's going to live. Not knowing he's not going to be condemned and executed. And saying, don't you want to do this? Don't you know? You know it's true. The man that has wealth and power and luxury. And people interpret this differently personally because I'm a Paul fan. I think he almost got him. That's the, I don't, some people think Agrippa might be being sarcastic or something. Personally, I don't think so. But, you know, time will tell. Uh, we'll get to meet him perhaps in the second resurrection. Because it says in verse 28, Then King Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Verse 29, Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Because as pitiful as Paul's state was, and for all the suffering he had gone through, that most of the men and women in that room living their lives of royalty and luxury perhaps had never seen, he recognized that in the end there is no other stream. That he was drinking from the truth. And he had a relationship with his creator. And there's something held out for him that was so precious. There is nothing you can go through in this life that is worth trading for it. And there is no element of his life that is worth keeping. That you wouldn't be willing to devote. And that is for us to learn and to figure out for ourselves. Brethren, let us not shame those who've gone before us. Rather, let us be abandoned completely and wholly to his will and assured fully of his love and his reward. And let us truly devote ourselves utterly to him who is utterly devoted to us.